Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. All right, today we're lucky to have Lucas Jaden. He's a performance coach and member of Train to Be Clutch. He's worked with Major League Baseball teams, Fortune 500 companies, NCAA teams, including my own team, LMU. And he's also just an all-around great guy. Lucas, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you very much, guys. Uh, really grateful to be here. Well, we're grateful to have you. So today we wanted to talk about um, a little bit of the darker side of, of sport. Uh, I know it's something you call the dungeon moments, the fearful, challenging times in sport. Can you start out by telling us why our brain responds this way in something so fun like sport? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, I'm a full believer in the reason we get into sport is to experience the highest emotions that we possibly can, the highest amounts of joy, um, connection. And when we risk going all into that, uh, we risk what we call at times the darker side or um, the setback, the frustration that comes with it. And for me, it's uh, getting into this was kind of a, a personal pursuit. And so if we back it up uh, kind of to my high school years, I, on, on the outside, I had a lot of things going as an athlete, as a student. Um, but inside was a mental challenge. Uh, I was what many would call OCD. I had uh, a mind that was like a hamster on a wheel that would just never stop to the point where I was probably sleeping about three to six hours a night. And you just can't go that long. And so finally, as a, as a high school dude, it's pretty scary, but to go see a dreaded counselor. And uh, mm-hmm. at the time, it kind of, uh, I don't know if the counselor necessarily helped me, but what I realized was that there was a lot of stuff out there that my coaches didn't know about the mental side of the game, that my parents didn't know, even though they were incredibly loving and supportive. Uh, but I could train as hard as I want wanted physically and yet this mental side just uh, really limited me and so I kind of took off into my quest on a personal uh, level and then started to realize the work that I was getting into wasn't just me and so that's where the language of um, navigating the dungeon days uh, came up and and so it's kind of where it started and so the dungeon days are obviously the opposite of what I call the penthouse days. And so um, I know you guys are are just huge uh, LMU with the motor development and growth mindsets. And so three years ago, I started, that was kind of the the beginning of my teaching around the mental training was uh, growth mindsets, grit, uh, all these words that I just, ideas that I love. And so we have a phrase that train to be clutch that we use as our highest standard called true mental toughness and we basically say it's treating people well uh, giving your best bringing great attitude and having unconditional gratitude and so i can i call it the kind of the day that things changed for me when i realized that this dungeon and pentels thing was at the really at the core because i just got done doing a workshop uh the night before and then at the time i was still uh, i was teaching middle school and uh do either of you have middle school kids no, thankfully, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> not yet, but they're coming. They will come, yes. And so uh, so I get done teaching this workshop, and it's all about 
through mental toughness and developing the mindsets. And we dug into the fix first growth. And there was this one student, this was when uh, Cam Newton had uh, made it to the Super Bowl, right? And so, well, I don't know if you guys really follow football, but what did, any idea what, in your eyes, what Cam Newton made famous, what move? Or was it a scrambling? <laughs> no, I don't know. Have you heard of the dab? Yeah, I was going to say a celebration. Uh, yeah, yeah, you got it. No. So this dab thing, and for anybody that's listening, they probably, they may or may not know. So he makes a celebration popular. In the middle school world, it absolutely took over. And basically, it's like this, this very short celebration where you just kind of dip your head into uh, your elbow socket. And uh looks really dorky, but because he was doing it, every middle schooler was taking it on. And this one student, it was his go-to move at all times. He was my most frustrating kid. Um, And so I get back from this workshop really late, have school the next day, and walk in. And this kid, uh, he could just, we'll call him Ryan, but he could really push anybody to the limit. And usually I had a really good plan. I modeled what I preached and, you know, use proximity, use great language, praise, and give feedback as what we believed in. But this one day, so I come in, he's making snow angels on my floor uh, in the middle, just in the middle of class. And so I walk up to him like, all right, uh, Ryan, we've discussed this. I'm like taking my breaths. And uh, he jumps up very quickly. He's one of those kids that's just all over the place, runs towards the door. um, And the whole class now is watching, like, how is Mr. Jaden going to respond? And it was one of those door handles that kind of goes out to the to the side where you have to really open it all the way to be able to open up. And he had it only opened up halfway. And so he's going to the door to open and he looks back at me to just give it to me one more time. He kind of, he was an emotional kid. He didn't really think things through uh, and would just yell it. And he's going, Mr. Jaden, you're such a, and before he goes out the door that he thought he had open, he turns to kind of run, just smokes himself off the door, falls flat back on the floor. (laughs) And so now all my students are looking towards him like, oh my goodness, I'm over here on the other side. And all I can manage is this dab. And so I just dab in front of the whole class. And uh, it's a ridiculous move if you look it up. Um, <laughs> totally un- immature. Uh, I don't know what Carol Dweck would say about that type of feedback. <laughs> um, but at, I'm lucky at my initial mode was, oh, my God. Like, my first thought is, like, he deserved it. But then as I kind of, like, went back to my seat it was what the hell is wrong with you (laughs) like you you are broken like last night you were teaching true mental toughness and now today show up uh and dab on a kid and so at that moment it was just so clear that the root of all of this uh that from my belief of the idea of seeing growth mindsets of taking a risk uh taking on challenges having kids that are open is almost a symptom to things that are different. And that's where the the dungeon, the penthouse was born. And I believe when we wake up in these penthouse days, it's it's like wearing glasses that are clear. And we see things as they are. We can navigate frustrating kids uh, pretty seamlessly because why we got into this in the first place, to be able to help them. But on the dungeon days, we could almost do the same thing we did the day before, but we wake up and it's cluttered, there's chaos. We're annoyed more easily. Uh, sometimes we call these days Mondays. But um, and in these days, it's like wearing glasses that are so crap stained that we can barely see through them um, to make it 
make it through. And so what I do with athletes is dig into, hey, I know that you want to have a growth mindset. You want to control the controllables. Uh, and we can all do that in the penthouse. But what's holding you back in the dungeon days? And, and how do we navigate those? And I guess, yeah, what would your advice be? How as athletes do we do we get out of the dungeon? Yeah. So, um, and, you know, the second part of John's question was with the brain. And, and I think that's where we dig into it. So the first part is with athletes is knowing when we go into those states, uh, what are we, wh- how are we going to react? And so what are those states in the first place? So I've asked a lot of kids, I think I've had about 20,000 responses to this question. What does the dungeon look like to you? Um, and I'm just going to read kind of five examples, and then um, you guys got to pull out what you see as consistencies. So the dungeon to me is uh, – yeah, let me get it up. All right. The dungeon is going all into something, always being looked at as the leader, but never feeling like I'm enough. Going to bed at night, wondering if I really fit into the group. We put on the faces like we're great teammates, but then I'm always wondering what people are saying behind my back. I worry about my weight and what I look like among my teammates. My parents have ridiculous high expectations. This playing used to be a game. Now it feels more like a job. I just got a Division I scholarship. Should be the best time of my life. I think it's just the best time of my dad's life. It's really hard to always have to look like you have it together. I never know what coach is thinking about me, and it constantly feels like a weight on my shoulder. Anxiety, the constant worry of what other people are thinking. So I kind of pulled those because they were just very similar to what I get. But So from your experience, what did you guys hear that kind of was a, a common thread? Well, it seemed like almost all of it was, what do other people think about me? Yeah. Would you agree with that, Billy? Yeah, yeah. There's expectations, what they think. Yeah, and so the crazy thing is, is when you ask, like, how do we help with that? It's number one. The first thing is, well, what's wrong with the dungeon? So um, I I don't know if one of you want to kind of share, but what was the last time when I say experience the dungeon, what's the last time that one of you felt it? Um, I had a rough tournament in Florida, and – Maybe just my usual dramatic self afterwards. I just felt like, why am I doing this? Is it really worth it? Um, I, yeah. get, I get a normal job, <laughs> guaranteed paycheck, and so much more, you know, so much easier. Um, yeah, yeah. That's kind of the thoughts after a, a bad loss. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and those thoughts are, are again connected to because what would it mean if you got a real job? Uh, I feel like I would be quitting. Okay. And why would, at that dungeon moment, why would that be the way out? Um, yeah, I think part of it is, I mean, just tying into what the dungeon moment part would be my expectation, other people's expectations on how good, how we looked like not qualifying and, you know, we were better than that and just kind of felt like a, yeah, it didn't live up to what we should have done. Yeah. And how old are, Billy, do you mind if I ask how old you are? Yeah. 36. Still suffering. Yeah. right inside like uh, when we go to the dungeon moments it's tying into our vulnerabilities and like 36 year old you should have a real job by now (laughs) and and so uh the first thing is just understanding that by signing up for being an athlete or going all into something 
we have to navigate the dungeon. Now, what that looks like is a little bit different for everybody, but it is interesting whether I'm working with MLB people, a stay-at-home mom, a um, uh, a seventh grader, or just somebody, uh, a CEO, it always comes back to um, what other people think. And so a lot of that, I don't know um, how in-depth you guys go on the brain end, but helping kids understand that that thought, what you just talked about in the dungeon moment, is not a, a sign of something's wrong. It's a sign of you're human. And we kind of got to roll it back a long ways to understand the very basics of how our brain is built to help uh, our athletes understand just why we get those uh, that self-doubt. We call them gremlins from Brene Brown. But um, so if you uh, if you kind of roll it way back to, I don't know, 50,000 plus years ago, uh, if we imagine uh, caveman uh, John out there just rolling <laughs> around, uh, John, what would your average day look like? Uh, my average day would be, what, hunting for food and water and making sure I have shelter. Yeah, pretty simple, right? Chasing <laughs> uh, caveman Paula. Yeah, <laughs> yeah my caveman wife. Caveman. Out on the prowl, caveman wife. Uh, yeah. and, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it was, it's pretty simple. It's survival, and it's making it there. And the one thing that feeds survival is fear. And so I like to call it the, the five F's, like what you're working for, number one, is food. But if all of a sudden John is out there on the prowl and he comes across a, a fresh saber-toothed tiger track, um, well, maybe John's not the exact example because he might go right into fight mode of like, I'll take it. <laughs> no, but, I'd run. Uh, I'd run. Mo- most people are going to go into flight mode right away. Uh, so flight mode first, let's get the hell out of here and avoid the risk. Uh, if I cross paths and have to fight, then it becomes that. Uh, but when we run and, and we're going to run back to a group, what was the power of at that time? What was the power of the tribe or the group? Safety. Yeah, safety, safety in numbers. And so it's such a basic thing that most of us know. And so we we, clim- we clamor for that group to have it for the safety because if that tiger comes back, we got a chance. Um, but now if the chief of our village is there and decides that John's been cocking off too much or has been, a, you know, has a little bit of attitude and he's going to kick him out, unless he's Jason Bourne, like you are done. Uh, and so we've been hardwired to really toe the line, to not have tough conversations that might uh, uh, disappoint people or frustrate people. And so today, um, fast forward to where we are now, we have this big, beautiful brain that's allowed us to communicate on high levels, to take risks, to think about the future and also analyze the past. But we still operate with what we call in uh, the lizard brain as that reactive part of our brain. And we have to manage it. And so this fear-based part of our brain drives so much of uh, what we do that when we get into the weeds of the dungeon moments, it's where it full-heartedly comes alive. And it's different for everybody. Like your gremlins, Billy, might be different because of your exact situation uh, versus mine. But they always tend to come back to, A, where I should be at. We have this made-up kind of thing of based on when we were growing up of who the person we should be. Uh, and anytime we push that comfort zone 
with our lizard brain, uh, it's wanting comfort. And so when we push the comfort zone, it's going to do anything possible to get the nine to five job, to slow down and get consistency because uncertainty pisses the lizard off. (laughs) And um, so when you go back to with kids, the first or with athletes of any age, to me, it's asking, is this a threat or is it a challenge? And that lizard brain is going to engage in either one of those. But if it's a challenge, if we view it as a challenge, we can funnel the good that it has to offer. Hmm. So should we, I mean, it seems like something like expectations is a big part of this lizard brain, and mm-hmm. but also a very common thing for any sort of athlete. So should we not have expecta- expectations? Should we try to suppress those? What are your thoughts on that? Can you give me an example of an expectation you have for yourself? Um... Sure. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I think one is to to improve. Yeah. But um, I think, like, you know, one that I would rather not like to admit is to win more than Billy or to win more than, you know, X player. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. But if I was answering in a um, way that I'd like to answer it, yeah, I'd say, yeah, expectation for me is to get better. Yeah. And, and so I, I view there's a big difference between standards and expectations. Um, expectations are interesting to me because it's a hard finger to put your line on of, well, how good should I be? Um, like, I don't want to set it too, too high, but I don't want to set it too, too low. And so to me, we always fall back on, are your expectations limiting you uh, to the point where you, you're encompassed by fear? And so um, with when we look at the lizard brain, it's all about uh, gaining the psychological safety as the close-knit group to know, A, I belong. That's where uh, a lot of the best teams that we see that I, I feel, like when I came out to LMU, I look for, does this environment feel safe over, over smarts, you know, over ability? That safety over and ultimately wins out. And so the crux of it is I think you can have – the expectations forever, whatever you would want. But the underlying factor is, are we doing it out of fear of trying to just constantly measure up and get better than the person next to me? Or am I doing it out of, out of trust, out of love for just wanting to grow, uh, not knowing where my end game even is. And Lucas, do you ever see, I mean, this sounds great just to play devil's advocate. Do you ever see that safety leading to complacency if everybody's just maybe too comfortable on the team with just being loved and where they're at at that point? I think when you, when I think about the best um, environments and so to answer your question, I've never met a group. Um, I met groups that are too comfortable, um, not necessarily. And I separate comfortable and safety as different. Um, and so I have seen it where groups get too comfortable. We get into the rut, Um, and they don't have that edge because the benefit of the lizard brain, right, is when you get before a match, um, you go out there and you have the benefits of a lizard brain. You have higher cortisol levels. You have some adrenaline pumping, and our focus is narrowed. It allows us to jump and run and do everything faster. And so I've seen teams where comfort becomes the norm. Uh, But the thing about safety is 
I don't believe that we can get too safe because safety allows us to then open up the door to be pushed further. And so um, too comfortable, yes, but too safe, I guess in my brain is different, but I could see how they correlate. So then if um, you have, especially for a coach, say a coach has an athlete, say it's Billy and he's playing in Florida and he's in, he's in the dungeon and it's mid-match, yeah, you know, and there's uh, whatever it's, whatever sport it is, you know, you're halfway through it and there's a lot more match to play. How do you, how do you help Billy get out of the dungeon or can you? Yeah. And do you think you can perform well when you're in the dungeon? Uh, yes. What was that? Sorry. You came at the same time. Billy disagrees. I said, yes. And Billy, what do you think? I feel like my initial thought was not my best. I think I can perform. Yeah, and and so it ultimately one of the I just heard a really good sports psychologist that I really appreciate and get a lot from said, "Are you that bad that you have to feel good all the time in order to play well?" And Ken Revisa, uh, yes, he, you are right, <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I fully agree with him to the point. I have honestly had some of my best days where I went into something stressed, a little bit pissed off feeling that dungeon moment. However, people, everyone's different. And I think, so the core of it with that as a, coming from a coach is number one, we have to lead them into this and knowing a, where am I at? If I'm in the dungeon, how do I navigate through it? Um, And so that just looks like modeling earlier in practices before you get to that moment. Hey, just check your state. Uh, one of the most beneficial things that we have teams doing is before they get into action, just talk about the lens that you're wearing. Are you in the dungeon right now? Are you at level one, two, or are you up in the penthouse? What lens are you seeing the world through right now? Um, and just check. There's not, If you're in the dungeon, that's all right. It's going to take more energy to live up to our standards, but you have to meet our standards yet. Just because you're feeling the dungeon doesn't mean you can gossip you can be an energy vampire or, you know, use things that aren't who we are. And so it's really a lot of modeling ahead of time and discussing these. But then in match, the kind of the I use the acronym ABT. It's acknowledge. Number one, acknowledge and be aware. I think we've all seen people who have gone weeks in the dungeon and they weren't even really aware of it. Um, and so acknowledge a hey, where am I at? Press pause, which the B is breathe. Uh, breathe. And then third, go back to your training. Trust your training and do the actions and the routines that have gotten you there. So that's in, especially in action, it's acknowledge, breathe, go back to your routines that have been trust, trust your training. What happens if you suppress it? You say, oh, that shouldn't be there. I shouldn't feel that way. Yeah, no, that and that's where I do a lot of work. Um especially in the MLB world, because when you got time to think, sometimes that's the scariest, uh, <laughs> the scariest of times. And what I can see is accumulation. Like if we try to believe that our thinking is fully controllable, it's one of the biggest uh, things that I think set us back is that we can control our full thinking. If you could control your thinking after that match um, that Billy was talking about where he was just having a self tirade, I would believe if we could fully just turn it off like a snap of the fingers that we would. And, and so 
um, to me, if we have to learn to grab on and let go. And so I view kind of the thoughts. I'm a huge um, proponent proponent of the app Headspace. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I view thoughts like traffic. And, you know, they're coming through for different reasons. And if we see the thought from afar and let it continue to pass through, we have the best chance of getting into a different state. But if we try to stop and wonder, you know, what's wrong with me for having this thought? Wow, what is that? And we give it meaning. It's like standing in front of the traffic and pretty soon it starts to accumulate uh, and get (laughs) the traffic jam inside of our head, which is the opposite of flow, which is what we're looking for. And so um, what I like to call it is at that point, what turns into an emotional volcano. (laughs) And so if we continue to bottle up and block, you know, this uh, idea of vulnerability of being willing to just explain, yeah, we're going through a tough experience. I have thoughts of self-doubt. I'm wondering if I'm ready enough, if I'm old enough, young enough, blank enough you can fill it in if we can process that instead of letting it accumulate then we avoid um the breakdowns or what i call the emotional volcano i understand like as a coach maybe you see a player that is you know in this dungeon moment or having a bad day and it's a good time to address that but as coaches like framing a practice is there do we want to be creating these moments in training um so that they can respond to that or i guess how would you go about training this with the team? Yeah, you know, I mean, one of the things first off is when we talk about psychological safety, the the first thing to me is is knowing the person. So every minute you take to fully invest in your athletes, you know their different triggers that will help them navigate the dungeon um, and those that won't. Some of the kids might need a, a kind of a, a push, you know, a, a, a swift kick in a – non-literal way and other kids need to be really listened to and the only way that you figure that out is by really knowing your kids we uh, I was just working with a a big football program uh, that has over 100 guys in it and their coach went through every single guy and told me about their backstory and when you can do that when you first off know your players or your coaches at that level, then you start to figure out what are their gremlins. You know, what is the trigger points for the lizard brain? What are the those things that are holding them back, kind of the chains that they have on them? And so the first thing is creating space to be able to do that, to process that um, with them. And then, you know, the other thing of how you start framing your practices is – well, what, how do we make it most game-like? So uh, does the environment match, which I know is nothing new for you guys, especially when I visited John. But uh, one of the biggest things that I hear is kind of, uh, you know, one of two things is, one, if we play early in the morning or it takes us a full match to get going or it takes us whatever to get to our level of play, um, my first question is, well, when are you playing in your practices? Because the traditional method is let's get warmed up, let's do skill breakdown, and then let's play at the end. And so um, my first thought is just looking at, you know, how do you regulate energy? Help, how do you help them to acknowledge, here's where I'm at. If I'm in the dungeon, man, it's groggy. It's hard for me to get going. I need to be able to turn it around. And so in practices, it's being um, kind of flexible with where we put our competitive environments uh, during that. 
And so moving that around to model what's going to be needed is the first part. And then the second one or the third one to me is the the big one is just modeling it as a coach, um, modeling that, hey, if we check our states today, we're going to talk in, in partners. All I want you to do is just acknowledge which um, state that you're at and then explain how you're going to have to gain the courage or the energy to reach our standards today. And as a coach saying, look, today I'm, I'm at level one or today's actually a dungeon day. Like my son or daughter didn't sleep last night. I was up all night, I'm a little stressed, but I'm absolutely going to bring it as best I can today. And so doing that just as modeling the tools for our athletes for how we want them to respond. And so that's just a few areas that pop to mind. That was part one with Lucas Jaden. Join us next week for part two as we hear more insights on how to escape the dungeon.